Hi, welcome to Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. We're in Washington, D.C. I've got my sister, Debbie Shore, here, co-founder of Share Our Strength. Deb, thanks for being back. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, and Nick Stefanelli, amazing chef, chef owner of Masseria and a great Share Our Strength supporter. Nick, glad you're here. Glad to be here. Uh, and with us from a studio in Chicago, Diana Aviv, the CEO of Feeding America. Oh, Billy, I'm delighted to be with you and with Debbie and honored to be in the same program with Nick. This is just such fun. Well, we always talk about food a little bit here, and we talk about a lot of issues, not just hunger, uh, but we usually start with food because we always have a chef, and we've got a great one with us today. Um, Nick Stefanelli, you didn't start out to be a chef, and one of the things that just like comes up over and over and over again on this program is the number of your colleagues in the food industry who didn't know that they were going to be chefs. They started out to do something else. In your case, it was fashion and design, I think, and, and you were in Milan. Even something before fashion. Uh, yeah, it was sports and then led into fashion, and then I realized the love of food and then pivoted and started running with it, and it just took off. And okay. I think that's kind of, you know, the the food scene has changed a lot from where we're at now to where it was 20 years ago, and people see it as a as a great place to find a profession and a career and a path to yeah. go into. So started out with sports. What what sports? Uh, I went to DeMatha High School and uh, played baseball there. Oh, and ended up breaking my foot and getting held dealt the card that guess what you're not gonna you're not gonna go any further. So and just kind of moved on and pivoted from there and was working for a master tailor at Water de Pandy who's got a shop here in the D.C. area. And I went to Italy to go look at design schools and at that point I fell in love with food culture that really wasn't as prevalent as it is today and came back and enrolled in culinary school with Francois Dionneau at l'Academie de Cuisine and hit the ground running. The food culture wasn't as prevalent here in the U.S. It was probably always prevalent (laughs) in Italy, right? Well, it's people are just spilling over in the streets and in cafes and trattorias and drinking and eating and coffee shops. And it's just, it it just stirs a passion inside of you that makes you just want to be a part of it. So, So, but what, like what actually happened to you? You're like schlepping around uh, Italy on your way to design school one day and you're just like, no, I think I'll go to this. I was actually going to look into design schools to move to Italy to go look into design. And I was just like, wow, this is like something I've never seen before. And it's just, and it just kept going. And it wasn't something that just like hit you and made you shift. It was as, as a trip went on and you start to look into things and then, you know, you start to soul search about what you want to do and all of a sudden it just led to culinary school and just hit the ground running and never looked back. Uh, the other thing we hear constantly, Deb, is that uh, parents and particularly grandparents seem to have an outsized influence with a lot of the great chefs. And I think you had That's Greek right. and Italian grandparents who were somewhat yeah, of an influence for you. Yeah, my whole family cooked. It's, food's always been a huge part of what we did. Gardens in both of my grandparents' backyards, apple trees, fig trees. I mean, my grand, my great uncle was the CEO of Giant Foods for 15 no years, and mm. so there was always kind of. And he started out as a buyer for for them and worked his way to CEO. And it's always food was always a part of life, but it was always a piece that you never thought of as a profession until it came time to decide who you want to be as a person, and it just kind of led into where I am today. You know, it, it, I'm thinking about is the fact that, you know, when we think about how many people become chefs that started out doing something else and for whatever reason they moved into this area, there's so many there's so many different kinds of food now and so many different kind of restaurants. It probably is a very subliminal thing that people feel like, oh, 
look at this big world of food. It's not just an Italian restaurant or a French restaurant or hamburgers and hot dogs. I can be creative, and I think that's probably what has spurred on you know this phenomena, really. Well, I want to come back and find out how Masseria came to be, but I, first I want to ask Diana. Diana, I knew you grew up in South Africa, I believe, I think during apartheid, and actually we're talking about food, but, uh, and I've, I've actually, my honeymoon, I think I told you my honeymoon was in South Africa, and we had some amazing food, but I think I'd also read that you actually grew up, just given the conditions in South Africa, seeing hunger and seeing kids who were really suffering from malnutrition. Yeah, you know, growing up in South Africa um, during apartheid meant that uh, we weren't as particular racial group allowed to mix in communities of another racial group without getting the permission uh, uh, the permission of government. So people were awfully oblivious to what was happening in other people's lives. The newspapers were censored and so on. But when I was 11, um, my parents went off to their sports club to play tennis and golf and all that sort of stuff and sent us to a youth organization. And I think they had no idea that this youth organization cared about social justice and those issues. And they got permission to take us as young kids, I was just 11, to Soweto, which is the biggest black township outside of Johannesburg. And at that time, I saw people living in the most awful conditions, Um, no hot and cold running water, um, certainly no electricity, open sewers and so on. And kids with extended bellies, which you knew was because of malnutrition, um, the wrong color, hair color, because of um, vitamin deficiencies and so on. And I remember going home to visit with my parents, uh, I mean going home to, to be with my parents and saying to them what I'd seen, and they just didn't believe me. And that made me decide that I have to deal with this my whole life, that having people live in those kinds of conditions was just not part of the human race and that I had an obligation to do something. And that was the first time that your 11-year-old eyes had seen anything like that? It was the first time I said to my parents, you're just wrong. You can't tell me what I didn't see. It was more the shock of my parents saying, oh, 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 tut-tut, because they hadn't read about it or anything like that. And so part of it was to then learn as much as possible about what was happening in my own country because our school books were censored, the newspapers were censored, movies. Um, the, you know, and the, there was a movie way back in the time that I was growing up called To Sir With Love with Sidney Poitier. They banned that because it was about a marriage or an impending marriage, but an engagement between a white young woman and uh, an African-American man. And that wasn't allowed to be shown. So that was the degree of censorship that happened over there. And so it felt that it's important for me, in my own little way, to become aware and then to speak truth to all of that. And what, and what did it lead to in terms of your career? I know you as the phenomenally successful leader of independent sector and now Feeding America. But before that, uh, what were the, the steps that led up to that as a result of this kind of your social justice nerve being pinged? So as a young girl, I thought that because I was um, a white South African, that there was there was going to be no future for me, that I either would end up in prison as part of a protest movement or I had to leave and to build a life somewhere else where there was um, more decency and justice. And didn't know at the time that Nelson Mandela would be released from prison, didn't know that there would be a revolution without bloodshed, didn't know any of those changes because none of that was possible and the oppression was getting worse and worse. So I eventually decided to come to the United States for crazy reasons, to join 
an ex-boyfriend um, and um, ended up in New York City. And um, when that relationship broke up, I was too embarrassed to go home because my parents told me not to do that. So I ended up being an accidental immigrant in the United States. But my passion about social justice didn't change. And I knew just from that young age that whatever I did, I needed to work on making society a better place for other people. I grew up in a middle-class family and wanted to be sure that um, people who had less than me um, had a fair chance uh, in life. How old were you when you came over? I was 23. And then you, you got into social work? I did. Well, I had done that in South Africa because that seemed to me the only way that I could do to get involved in fighting social justice in South Africa. So I studied social work and I worked in townships and so on. And when I came here, I couldn't decide which way to go, either clinical work, um, psychotherapy, understanding people or, so, or social justice and community organizing. So I specialized in both areas. And in the beginning, became a therapist. I uh, ran a domestic violence agency for battered women and their families. We created a counseling program. And I got involved as a result in that in death penalty work because uh, one uh, the uh, in New Jersey, the um, public defender's office called me one time and said that there was a woman who'd been battered and um, she um, had killed her husband and was uh, willing to offer a battered woman's defense. And that started a long um, sidebar or second job where I worked with uh, public defenders in New Jersey with people who were facing the death penalty in the charge and helping to understand who they were. So being able to use my psychological background that I had and going into the local communities and seeing um, the conditions and then sharing with the jury, mostly in the penalty phase, what were the conditions that created this person's life circumstance and resulted in them behaving the way that they did uh, to help uh, with uh, making the case against the death penalty. So I did that as a parallel piece of work. Um, when I left the domestic violence agency, I also felt that the one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one work was profoundly important, but in the end, I needed to change public policy. And so I went to a national organization that dealt with all of these issues, but from a public policy uh, point of view. But because I didn't know American law very well, in those days we didn't have computers, so I would run to the New York City Public Library and look at the microfiche to understand all the legislation and how it worked and so on to try and get an education so that I could stay ahead of the game. Hmm. Nick, did, um, were your parents similar to Diana's? Did they want you to be a baseball player or a designer or a chef? Were they happy with where you ended up? Or? Uh, Originally, my uncle was part of the big AOL revolution that happened. So oh, is that right? Computer science. And yeah. Seeing what it was, and I was more artistically driven, and I would skip my computer science classes and go sit in art history classes And when I was going to college. So <laughs> I guess I rebelled myself to get to put myself to where I am today. Um, and how did Masseria come about? So you, you, you were a chef at other places first, right? You were at Bibiana here in Washington, D.C., um, how did you decide to open up a restaurant? How did you get so successful so fast? Um, One, a Michelin star restaurant, right? Pretty amazing. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, it, it was amazing to receive the first time we got the phone call, and we just renewed it this couple of weeks ago. So, congrats. Thank you. Um, fine dining was always in my background, and a good friend who you guys might know, Richie Brandenburg, who works for Edens, came to me mm -hmm. and was like, "I have a." I have a space for you I want to show you, and I think you you might hit it out of the park. And when we saw where Masseria is today, it 
it was an old produce warehouse that had been abandoned for a couple of years and I saw the I saw the bones and the potential that it could be and know, knowing what was coming into the neighborhood and really kind of fell in love with the space is which they tell you in real estate 101 never do <laughs> <laughs> um, but we went in and gutted everything out and used it as our canvas to kind of build a, a restaurant that was like coming into my house we wanted to have all the beauty of fine dining but still keep it keep it comfortable for people to come in and to enjoy from a different perspective and make it a true experience of, of dining and not just dinner itself so Nick yeah, I, I, re- what, I remember when I was gonna ask what you have when you go there well I will tell you my favorite dish that you always make and you even brought to our holiday party. But I remember when you were talking about this, we went out and had a cup of coffee and you were like telling me the vision of this restaurant and you were so excited and so alive. I was so excited for you. And here, here now you're can't get into the restaurant now. Hope I can. <laughs> I bet we would struggle to name a single chef in Washington, D.C. or anywhere else who's not involved in some yeah. important cause. No, that's right. Just, you know, everybody's involved in something, right? I mean, food brings everybody together. So it's like, especially in the sense of like what you guys are doing at Share Our Strength, it's when people don't have that ability to have that that table, of whether it's just like simple bread and vegetables or if it's something as refined as white truffle risotto, that the what happens at the table when people come together, I think is a very important thing. So Yeah, and you know, I mean, the original idea behind the organization, the power of sharing what you do, sharing your passions and your skills and your talents is as alive today as it was when we started the organization. And I think we find that restaurants and chefs are looking for a way that... You know, we gave them an easy vehicle, right, to get involved. And Diana, you're, you know, obviously would experience the same thing. You have a lot of incredible chefs lined up at Feeding America, just you know, doing incredible work with the organization. But don't you find that 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 by and large, the majority of restaurants and chefs that you talk to are just waiting to be asked? You know, Debbie, I do. Although I want to say, I want to tip my hat to to both of you as leaders of this extraordinary organization, share our strength and salute the way in which you made it possible for chefs to find it easy to connect with you. So we learn from you every day. I mean, you know, Diana, one, one of the um, messages that we talk about and push out a lot that we didn't, you know, until we really decided that ending child hunger was going to be our focus. And while, you know, hunger is a humanitarian issue for sure, you don't want kids to go hungry, it's the right thing to feed them, but it's really a bigger, it, it's much greater than that. So if a kid doesn't eat, and we're talking about, you know, healthcare issues and educational issues and even, you know, longer term workforce issues. And so, you know, trying to get people to understand that. And I feel like Feeding America, it's evolved so much since we started. I mean, when, when we started a Share of Strength, you know, Feeding America at the time, it was Second Harvest, was really just, you know, uh, you know a, a food bank that, that sold, you know, food to the pantries and the in the soup kitchens at, at pennies a pound. And now it's just so much more than that. I mean, it's really brought this issue into an entirely into an entirely different way of, of talking about it and having people understand it. But, do, I mean, do you, does Feeding America also spend time, because you're talking now about ending hunger, which is, um, which is great, not decreasing it, um, but actually ending it and putting yourselves out of business. But do you, are those messages around um, what happens to hungry kids part of the, part of the dialogue at Feeding America? Oh, yeah. Debbie, firstly, let me say that the work that you guys do on No Kid Hungry is such seminal work and important work that, again, I'm inspired by that work. And I want to be clear because I think that all of us have helped one another to get better at our work as we see what you're doing and so on. 
we found from our recent research that um, we found something a little different than what you just said. We actually found that the same people who were sympathetic to people at the food banks, those very same people when they were asked about those same people getting public assistance, their attitudes changed. Not about public assistance, about the people themselves. The only group, the only group that they didn't change their attitudes towards are kids. That they saw, and that goes, that wasn't true for veterans, it wasn't true for seniors, and it certainly wasn't true for adults um, or people with disabilities. But somehow, kids are vulnerable, didn't ask to come into the world. And so we see that if there's a way in which we can close the empathy gap by beginning with kids so that people become empathetic to begin with and then help them to on a path to understand that kids are connected to families, that there's a grandparent there, that maybe a brother went to the war and you know, is facing major challenges, that by connecting them to the child, that we'll be able to get a much more empathetic public. Well, you know, having you and Nick on together so, to me, kind of underscores the paradox of what we're talking about because, you know, when I visit a food bank, um, and I visited one in Richmond uh, recently, which I think is one of the larger ones in your in your network, Diana, uh, it was this extraordinary food bank, and they had a program where they had a fleet of trucks that took meals out to people who couldn't come to the pantries uh, and so forth. And on the one hand, I'm, I'm kind of schizophrenic about it, on the one hand, you think, Wow, this is just like the most the most amazing state of the art technology, um, and thank goodness these folks have figured it out. On the other hand, you think this is just insane. We know that we have no shortage of food in this country. We have no shortage of food programs. We enjoy it. You know, if you go to Masseria, you're you know you know you're just you just can't believe how blessed you are with great food. Um, and yet there's this dichotomy of you know not being uh, people being able to access it. Um, I I'm, I guess. Nick, that's one of the reasons that your industry has responded so powerfully to the work of Share Our Strength. People have a sense, and I don't mean in a guilty way, they have a sense of like, wow, we know about food, we know what it can do to people, we know the difference it can make in their lives. Um, I, I think what Diana was saying about children, has we've seen the effects of that as well. Um, but the industry has really rallied around this notion that we as an industry can help solve this problem. <clears throat> hundred percent. I think we're seeing the programs like in school where I've gone to do cooking classes or demos in kindergartens where they've learned how to grow beets and turnips and things like that. Because they don't like, know that they come from the ground sometimes, yeah, like, right? Especially in the cities where it's you don't see farms and they don't you don't see farmland. So it's like, where does yeah. a vegetable come from and how does right. it how does it arrive on a shelf or onto your plate and and motivating children to eat things that they wouldn't necessarily eat? And I still remember it was. You know, none of the kids wanted to eat these beets, and then this one little girl ate one because she loved beets, and they eat them in her house, and her tongue turned red, and she's sitting there, and one kid goes, oh, my God, your tongue's red, and then, like, all of a sudden, all these little kids start eating beets because they wanted their tongues <laughs> They red. wanted their so, tongues to be red. <laughs> so it's, like, <laughs> teaching them, and, 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 like, so they can see kind of the full circle where when you have kids that do grow up on farms, they know where everything does come from, and it's, like, teaching the nutritional part about it where it's, like, it's not only good, but it's good for you at the same time, and it, yeah. it makes a difference. And, like, workforce housing is another thing that you touched on where it's, you know, like getting people closer to the jobs so they're spending less time commuting and making it so that you're kind of evening that playing field so they're not spending two hours trying to commute to a job in the city so that they can they can support their family. And I think that's, uh, 
you know, it's kind of all like a full circle thing to kind of help to close mm-hmm. that loop to, to end hunger and to be able to, to be able to provide for everybody. I mean, these are issues that we've been looking at since what ancient Rome with the grain yeah. sheds and giving out bread. And we're still dealing with it in 2017. I, I'm just reminding you know, this conversation about chefs and hunger. It just reminds me of what Jose Andres is doing in Puerto Rico and Diana, I'm sure you've been, you know, I don't know if you've seen the recent articles about him, but he's like transforming the way, you know, people are getting fed in, in, in Puerto Rico. And I know that the food bank is the hub, right, in, in, um, in Puerto Rico. I just wondered if you can tell us anything that you've heard, you know, about the food bank or the state of affairs in Puerto Rico in the last week or so. Puerto Rico is one of our food banks, and it took them a while to, um, a few days to get up and running. I'll just share with you one quick story um, about um, the leader of the Puerto Rico food bank um, and what happened to her the day before uh, the, the terrible hurricane. She was driving on her way somewhere, and there was a man stopped at the side of the road, and he was changing the tire of his car, and uh, um, she stopped to help him. And he was so grateful that he whipped out his card afterwards and said, listen, if there's any way that I can ever help you in the future, let me know. And she looked at the card, and he was the president of a local bank. Then the hurricane broke, and about three weeks later, um, she um, knew that her, her employees had been amazing. They were working 18 hours a day, 20 hours a day, and she knew that they wouldn't be able to cash their checks because there were such long lines, and even then the banks wouldn't give them the full amount of the value of their checks. So she called her friend up, the guy whose tire she helped change, and she asked him if he would be willing to cash in all the checks of her employees. And he said, yes, of course, come down, did that, and handed out the cash to her employees. I mean, you don't, you don't tend to hear those kinds of stories. They're amazing. I met her, Diana, during, in January when um, yeah. President Trump was inaugurated. My sister insisted that we leave the city. <laughs> Um, I wanted to leave the country, but and so we went to we, we flew to Puerto Rico because yeah. there was a direct flight, and my wife thought I made very weird choices for my vacation. But I <laughs> took my twelve year old son to see the food bank, and I and I met the woman who's the CEO of it, and uh, it was a very impressive operation. And as you know, the poverty there is even more um, more palpable than we see in a lot of the a lot of our states. Uh, I think the child poverty rate is over. 40 or 45 percent. It's extraordinarily it's high. But, and the best way for anybody who's listening right now to support your work is feedingamerica.org, I assume? Yes, please. Go to that website, and I'm sure there'll be great, clear instructions on how to donate, how to support, how to get involved. Um, let's talk about what's next for each of you. Nick, you're opening up um, soon in an area in D.C., which we now call the Wharf. Yes, we are. We're actually... We're opening a market and a restaurant down there. So as we're looking to put our program together, it's supporting the local producers in our area and trying to humanely raise and naturally naturally raised meats and cheeses. And, and we're going to put together a good farm stand program and everything else and build into a part of a community that's really being developed. Um, so it's going to be an interesting product project to see how everything really starts to take shape. Diana, tell tell us uh, what else is in store for Feeding America uh, in the future in terms of, uh, you know, maybe some new areas or new priorities that you're going to be involved in. Well, you know, the one that we're paying very close attention to is the radical way in which technology is totally transforming our world. I mean, you just see it in terms of in the food universe where the focus is from the uh, 
creator, the source, the provider of the food, all the way to the table, sometimes cutting out all the middle people. Um, the food universe, probably, as you know very well, is um, paying very close attention to what Amazon did in buying Whole Foods and Amazon's focus on efficiency and cutting out everybody from um, creating it all the way as fast as possible to, to the end user. And we think that there are huge opportunities to take that technology, both partnering with corporations but also ourselves and developing ways in which we can get the food faster to the people who need it. Remember that when we um, rescue the food or we harness the food or it's given to us, often, especially with fresh products, we get them at the end of their life. So we have to do this very fast, get it, um, organize it, and then redistribute it. Another example of how we've been thinking about that differently with the help of our network members who came up with this idea in the first place, and now we're scaling it, is to have produce co-ops. So instead of one food bank getting an excess of bananas that they can't use because they get three truckloads in three days and they just don't have the ability to distribute, to rather have co-ops that any number of food banks can go to and get as much of that product and not just bananas but potatoes and tomatoes and all the rest um, from the co-op and that way they get what they need and many um, food um, uh, the, the, many food banks can take advantage of that. So between technology and that, and then just the last quick, quick, very quickly is, and I know you alluded to this earlier, Billy, and that is wasted food. Given that 40% of the food that we produce that consumes 21% of fresh water and it uses up 21% of landfill space, goes to waste, goes to landfill, we can do better than that. We can feed America and we can feed the world, and we are deeply leaning into that area as well. Thank you so much. I want to thank both of you. Deb, any Closing yeah. words well, before we finish here? Well, two things. One is, Diana, I'm so sorry you couldn't be at our table in Washington, but I'm glad you joined us from, Chica um, from Chicago. Chicago. You? You're in Chicago, yeah. And Nick, it took getting you on the show to see you for the first time in, in two years. So Nick's so a busy, busy man. I Nick's know. a busy man. Busy, busy. Nick and Diana are both elusive. They're both hard to see in person. <laughs> I know. It's rare to see them in their natural habitat. <laughs> rare sighting. Nick Stefanelli, Masseria, congrats on your success, and thanks for being on Ad Passion and Thank Stir. Thank you for having me. Uh, and Diana Aviv, uh, Thanks for your work. Just delighted to be with you all. Thank you for inviting me. Deb Shore, thanks for being here Thank again. Thank you. And Paul, Woody, our producer, Woodle, um, thanks for all the help and everything you do to make Ad Passion and Stir reach so many people around the country. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Ad Passion and Stir. Get closer to the problems that you care about. There's a famous photographer named Robert Kappa who once said, if your pictures are not good enough, you're not close enough. Well, in the social change space, getting close, bearing witness, going into the community, working with people directly, getting an understanding of what they need, that's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post, don't just preach. Get your hands dirty and get involved. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Kerry Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.